A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. To Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And we're just coming off of the uh, week of celebration with the Siam Hashas. So everyone's starting the new cycle now, or start trying to start the new cycle. And I recently uh, heard a great story of um, the great uh, renowned philanthropist Zev Wolfson was hosting the Prime Minister then, at that time, of the State of Israel, Ehud Barak. And Ehud Barak, it was right after the Siyam Hashaz, a day or two later, and Ehud Barak told uh, told his host that he plans on starting the Shas. Now, if anyone knows Ehud Barak, he's not really the uh, Shas type of guy, to say the least. So he's taken a little bit by surprise. So he said, what do you mean? You really plan on on studying the Shas? So he said, "Well, I I want to, I I would I would like to start the Dafayami at this point." So he said, "You got to be kidding! What, what do you mean that you Ehud Barak are going to be starting the Dafayami?" So he said, and I'll say it in Hebrew because that's the only way you could get the joke. Um, Ehud Barak says, "Ani rotzeli shas." So that's uh, one way of doing <laughs> the Dafayami and shas, but. Um, while I was in the United States, uh, my recent visit, I was privileged to meet up with a also renowned historian, Dr. Henry Abramson, who's not only a great researcher and historian, but also the dean of Touro College. And we met up, and he was sharing of some of his recent research projects and his recent book on the Piazzetzna Rebbe, which is excellent. And he also was telling us about his uh, project with the... Um, uh, Jewish history of the Dafyaimi, which sounded really interesting, and I looked into it, and it's, it is very interesting. And um, in general, the the OU Dafyaimi app um, seems to be doing an amazing job in promoting Dafyaimi. So, you know, also in the new cycle of the Dafyaimi, that's just another way. The Dafyaimi uh, app of the OU is another way to get involved. But moving along, because of everything, uh, the trips and trips to Lublin for the Sima Shas, I didn't have a lot of time to prepare for tonight's uh, episode. And a friend of mine and fellow researcher was 
gracious enough to share some of the research that he had been doing on a project and he plans on publishing soon as part of a book that he's writing. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about this topic that he shared with me and I have also what to add, of course. So we'll talk a little bit about tonight a fascinating story uh, about Mary Ben-Gurion. Who is Mary Ben-Gurion? So it brings out a lot in uh, recent Jewish history. It's a story of a family, a story of a few individuals, but it really is reflective of a lot of uh, context of the Jewish people in the last century. Uh, so David Ben-Gurion was obviously the, you know, the founding prime minister of the state of Israel, the great Zionist leader, um, and he was married to a lady named Paula Ben-Gurion. And Paula Ben-Gurion was an interesting woman. She grew up in Minsk, but moved to the United States uh, quite young, where she became very American, integrated, and became a nurse. And uh, David Ben-Gurion met her when he was in America during World War One, And she's a very different than him. She in she loves America, wants to stay there, never wanted to, never changed her name from Paula, even though uh, David Ben-Gurion always uh, insisted that she change it to Panina. He eventually gave up. It was Paulina originally, then Paula. And she was a bit of an anarchist, something of a Trotskyite during a different period in her life. She slowly integrated into Zionism, never quite integrated into Israeli society. She did move to Israel eventually in the, uh, I think in the 1920s, but um, she also was um, very protective of her husband. She was an interesting personality. So in any event, they have a few children. One of their children, they had one who was born in while well, they were still in America, the second one was born when they lived in England, and the third one was born when they lived in Israel, which was then Palestine. So their second child, Amos, was born while they were in England, eventually came to serve in in the British Army during World War II. Now there's a little bit of a confusion about Jews serving in the British Army during World War II, which I want to clear up. It's a bit of either a myth or confusion or a misunderstanding, I'm not sure which, that there was the Jewish Brigade during World War II, and that's where Jews from Palestine served in their own brigade with their own um, a symbol of the Zionist flag on their uniform. Now that actually happened, but it was all, only towards the end of the war. The Jewish Brigade, Churchill finally gave in after a lot of pressure from Chaim Weitzman and later on Moshe Sharet also, and others involved to create an all-Jewish brigade from all Jewish volunteers from Palestine. And that in the summer and already fall of 1942, it really only was deployed in October, November of 1944. Sorry, did I say 1942 by accident? 1944. Literally the last months of the war, they saw some action in on the Italian front. That's where they were deployed. And the last months of, of World War II in the British Army. That was the Jewish Brigade. There was about 5,000 soldiers in the Jewish Brigade. And and that was one thing that became very famous and legendary, um, especially in their activity in what in what it in what it symbolized. Here was an all Jewish fighting force from Jews from Palestine, fighting with flags and with uh, emblems on their uniforms of the of Zionist insignia, which the British Army allowed. And different colonies in the British Empire had that also. It wasn't only Jews from Palestine, but um, 
But that was a, one aspect which in the post-war era, they helped uh, in Italy and to a certain extent even in Austria and other parts. They helped Holocaust survivors and displaced persons camps. They definitely were instrumental in what came to be known as the Bricha, uh, the uh, smuggling of Holocaust survivors and having them make Aliyah illegally to Israel during the three years between World War II and the founding of the State of Israel. And uh, more importantly, this Jewish brigade served as the core of the Israeli army and the Haganah because they were Jewish soldiers with military experience in weaponry and with battle combat veterans trained by the British army. And they were therefore able to be become officers or soldiers in the new Israeli army when the State of Israel was founded. So the Jewish Brigade served a role, an important role, but that only was at the end of the war um, and the post-war. What was before that was um, many Jews from Palestine volunteered into the British Army, and over 30,000 of them served in the British Army in regular units. Many of them in regular units, some of them in what, what was called the Palestine Regiment, which was any... British colonists from Palestine, Arabs or Jews or anyone else who lived there, was not a specifically Jewish, uh, and they did not have any insignia from from uh, from Jews from Palestine. So there were uh, over thirty thousand who served in that, and that was ready from the beginning of the war. The official position of the Zionist leadership, I think it was even articulated by Ben Gurion himself, was that we fight the white paper as if there is no war, and we fight the war as if there is no white paper. And they, it was encouraged in the Yishuv to volunteer for the British Army, and many uh, Jews fought with distinction. And that was the majority of the years of the war when Jews from Palestine were serving in the British Army. It was in regular units of the British Army and not in the Jewish Brigade. I saw several books make that mistake uh, from the beginning of the war, there was, as, as, as it were, there was already a Jewish brigade, and that's just uh, something to clarify in general. There's two distinct uh, stories going on of Jews serving um, for the British, Jews from Palestine, of course. There are British Jews from England serving in the English army also, regular British citizens, and of course, that's, uh, that's, also, that's also a whole story. So in any event, um, Amos Ben-Gurion serves for the British army from the beginning of the war, and he's in regular army units, he serves in, a, as a, in, in, in combat. He becomes a British officer. And he's discharged. He's discharged as a major in the British Army. He went up the ranks. And then he's there for the entire duration of the, almost the entire duration of the war, so much so that he even served and was transferred to the Jewish Brigade towards the end of the war. So he serves in the regular army and then later on also in the Jewish Brigade. While he's in the Jewish Brigade, um, serving the British in during World War II, he um, is wounded. Um, not clear if he was wounded in battle or he got sick somehow, and he gets transferred to a hospital in Liverpool in England. There in England, his their nurse that takes care of him is a woman named Mary Callow, and she's a nurse in the British Army Hospital. For several months, she's taking care of him, and they fall in love. And they uh, they decide they want to get married. Now, Mary Callow's from the Isle of Man. She's Christian. No no intention of ever becoming Jewish. And and here we have an issue. The head one of the heads of 
the Zionist movement, one of the heads of the Jewish agency, a very one of the most prominent Jews in the world, and his son is about to marry out. Uh, as it happens, um, Ben-Gurion wasn't that concerned about it. He said his son is going to be happy, and uh, okay, this is what makes him happy, then let him, let him do what he wants. And she seems like a nice lady. He said, uh, he said it'll, it'll improve the race if... Uh, will improve the Jewish race if, if marriages like this happen, believe it or not, he said that. And he said she seems like a nice woman. He already noticed that Amos stopped smoking because of her. So there you go. She's having a positive influence on him. Let them get married. Paul of Ben-Gurion, of all people, who was less Jewish in a way, you know, she was more, like I said, she was less connected to Zionism. She wanted to stay in America originally. She kept her American name. She also was very anti-religious. She uh, was anti the imposition of rabbinic law in Israel. And ironically, she's the one who's opposed to the marriage. How could my son intermarry? How could she marry? How could he marry a non-Jew? And she insisted that she convert. And because of that, they have a situation here where David Ben-Gurion caves into his wife's demands and he goes to search for a rabbi who will convert her. So first... To assess the situation, is she interested in converting? Not really. She has no interest in really becoming Jewish. So an Orthodox rabbi is not going to convert her. Problem is, is that in England at the time, the United Synagogue is controlled by the Orthodox, and it's not really possible to find uh, any rabbis there who would convert her to Judaism. The only... only, um, reform or progressive rabbi in... uh, in England at the time was a fellow named Isidore Matuk, who was, was uh, he was in charge of the progressive or somewhat reform, whatever it was called at the time in England, synagogue in, in, in England. And as the old school reform movement was, he was extremely anti-Zionist, which was the original position of the reform mo- movement, because it was disloyal, it was dual loyalty to be Zionist, and the reform was all about integrating into the surrounding society. And he was one of the old-school reform rabbis, and he was rabidly anti-Zionist. And Ben-Gurion had no interest in asking him a favor. Forget about it, he's not going to ask him. So he's really in a real predicament here, because Paula Ben-Gurion says to her husband and to Amos, don't even think of bringing this young lady home if she is does not convert. So... She, you know, and and again, the the irony is is what Paula in her personal life was not Jewish, not so, you know, she was not a practicing Jew to any by any, you know, she was once asked by a, an interviewer if she keeps a kosher home. So she, so Paula Ben Gurion says, I buy kosher food in the supermarket and then I make a trafe at home. So, so she doesn't want her, but she doesn't want her son to marry a guy. You know, that would be terrible. So he finds, Ben-Gurion finds another rabbi who he knew very well, a fascinating individual named Yoyakim Prince, who was a German-Jewish reform rabbi. And and he had, he was an outspoken critic of Nazism. He was forced to flee for his life uh, from, uh, from Germany. In 1937, Stephen Wise helped him immigrate to the United States, and and he becomes a rabbi in Newark, which at that time had a burgeoning Jewish community. 
And here it's a Reformed Jewish community. There was also an Orthodox Jewish community. And Newark was a center of Jewish life at that time. And the story of Jewish Newark is a great story to be told. There was a very religious uh, Jewish community and rabbis. And, and uh, there, was, there was actually Jewish mafia, very active. Abner, nicknamed Longi Zwilman, was the uh, Jewish mafia boss for about 30 years before he committed suicide. Or it was hung. You don't know if it was him or they put out a contract on him. But either way, so Newark had a very strong Jewish community. And here Yoyakim Prince becomes a rabbi there. And because of his experience, he, he was, became a very prominent American Jewish leader. He was the president of the American Jewish Congress, of the World Jewish Congress. He was the founding, founder of the presidents of major American Jewish American organizations, something like that, which I believe still exists, and um, he was the president of that. And he he uh, because of his experience on experiences under the Nazis, he was became a big civil rights activist for minorities' rights for for the African American community. He, he was very close with um, uh, Martin Luther King, and he joined the. You know, he also lived in Newark, and he saw. Um, how the minority community was uh, was treated firsthand, and when he and in 1963, the famous march on Washington for civil rights, he was actually the speaker right before Martin Luther King's uh, "I Have a Dream" speech, which is a piece of American history. The speech before him was Yoyakim Prince, this reform rabbi who was a civil rights activist. Um, he's also a big Zionist, as it happens. He was. Very close with Ben Gurion, he was close with other Zionist leaders. He was a major player in the American Zionist movement, and therefore he um, he was someone that Ben Gurion felt comfortable turning to. So he asks Yakim Prince to to convert this lady. So he meets with her, and he says to her, "So you're gonna plan on leading a Jewish life? Not really. Plan on being part of the Jewish people." And sharing their fates. So that sounded good enough. He said that he, this is his own memoirs. He said he formulated a new principle based on what the uh, Isha Hashunamis tells Elisha Hanavi. She says, ami I sit amongst my people. And here, Mary uh, is willing to be sit amongst the Jewish people. So that, that makes her uh, pretty Jewish. So then Prince asks her, maybe. Mary is not really the most Jewish name. Maybe he'll go by the name Miriam. This way he'll sound more Jewish. And this was her response. She says, Doctor, my name is Mary. I was baptized Mary. And as long as there is breath in my body, I shall remain Mary. Good day, Doctor. And now what does he, well, now what does he do? She, she was baptized Mary. She's not changing her name. So this prince, but he has, Ben-Gurion said, Make her a Jew no matter what it takes. So he figures this 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 rabbi that um, this whole thing is just a formality. Uh, it's just to please Paula Ben Gurion, who's somehow bent on this daughter-in-law being Jewish. So he gives the conversion. He writes the certificate of conversion, and poof, Mary becomes Mary Ben Gurion. They had to get married very quickly. The parents weren't even able to attend the wedding, um, and they and. Uh, and they they had the, they had a, and they set, they settled down eventually in Israel. They come later, um, and she adapted to Israeli life. This Mary Ben Gurion, 
and she actually became the most traditional member of the Ben-Gurion family, who was not a very traditional family. She lit candles, and she went to shul, she goes, she kept Yantif to a certain extent, so she somehow became uh, more traditional, I don't know how religious, but more traditional than most of the other members of the uh, Ben-Gurion family. You know, David Ben-Gurion himself said he liked her, and he said she's the only real Jew in the Ben-Gurion family. That's how he he phrased it at the end. So, so they they get married. They settle down in Israel. You know, and uh, Amos Ben Gurion leads a career in the police, and then he's the CEO of the first uh, government-run textile industry called Atta, which, you know, of course, no nepotism involved in that appointment. So, and he leads a, and lived a long life, retired, died in two thousand and eight. So, in fact, Mary, his wife, died last year. I mean, she lived a very long life. She was 94, and she just died last year. So this is something really fresh from recent history. And um, and uh, and it, it comes up again when their kids want to get married. Because the Rabbanut in Israel obviously never recognized her conversion. And as far as the rabbinate, chief rabbinate in Israel, they go with an orthodox Halachic conversions, her her conversion, Mary's conversion, was not legit. It was done by this reform rabbi, Yoyakim Prince, and we saw how halachic it was just a couple of minutes ago. So in 1968, a year after the Six-Day War, their daughter Galit is trying to get married. And here the chief rabbinate says, well, her mother is not really Jewish. So what what do we do? So Mary went wild. What does that mean I'm not Jewish? First of all, I'm the daughter-in-law of the founding father of the state of Israel. How could I not be Jewish? Second of all, I live in Israel for 22 years. There are two really compelling reasons why I should be considered Jewish at this point. So here we have a real crisis. And Rav Goren, Rav Shlema Goren, who is the chief rabbi of the IDF and somewhat of a controversial figure himself, from other, we talked about him once. He solved the problem, and he was the Masada Kedushin at Galit's wedding, and everything worked out. I saw in 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 a article in Haaretz quoting a book by Tom Segev, which I have to admit I did not read, even though it it is a fantastic book uh, about Ben Gurion. I've been meaning to read it. Um, that that at some point Mary and Galit did go through an Orthodox conversion, so that is kosher there, and presumably that is what happened, because Rav Shlomo Gorin would never have just uh, accepted a guy like uh, Joachim, uh, Joachim uh, Prinz's uh, conversion, so there probably was a, a um, an Orthodox conversion at some level. Uh, unfortunately, um, Amos's son, Alon Ben Gurion, did not have the same, the same good 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 fortune of marrying a Jew. And he also he might not have been Jewish himself. He married out. He lived in New York. He didn't even live in Israel. He was the manager of the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and he alone alone Ben Gurion married a non Jewish woman. It's a little, uh, a little ironic in the family of David Ben-Gurion for this uh, to happen, but that's how things are, and it gives an insight into how, uh, gives us, first of all, a little bit of the background of the Jewish Brigade, about the Jewish community of Newark and Reform rabbis like Joachim Prinz and the Civil Rights Movement, and of course mainly about the challenges of Jewish identity in the 20th century, 
And uh, we know that Ben-Gurion sent letters around the world to rabbis at one point about who is a Jew. And uh, little did we know that he was asking also because his own family went through uh, that process and uh, that and that challenge of, of Jewish identity and um, and with his own son uh, who, who married this Mary Ben-Gurion. So this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, trips, and tours of places of note of Jewish history. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.